Hey guys, we're gonna get to today's briefing in just a second, but first, I wanna tell you about FT Edit. It's an app for your iPhone and iPad that gives you access to eight of the FT's best stories handpicked every weekday. The app's editors serve up a perfect mix of politics, business, and global news from our award-winning journalists, plus opinion pieces from our top columnists. The best part? You can try FT Edit today completely free for 30 days with no obligation. Just head to the show notes for the link. Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, March 21st, and this is your FT News Briefing. The International Monetary Fund is handing Sri Lanka a major bailout, and while banking troubles are starting to cool down in the U.S., First Republic Bank is still feeling the heat. Plus, the FT's Katie Martin tells us why the deal for UBS to buy Credit Suisse is leaving some bondholders high and dry. This has been a very big shock to people who really know their stuff. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The International Monetary Fund approved a $3 billion bailout for Sri Lanka yesterday. The country had been dealing with a mismanaged government for years, and the war in Ukraine led to soaring inflation and shortages last year that threw the country into a crisis. So will the money from the IMF help? $3 billion itself won't do very much at all. That's the FT's Jonathan Wheatley. While the dollar amount of the bailout won't do much, Jonathan says it will get the ball to recovery rolling. It gets them on the road, we hope, to resolving, you know, 90 or $95 billion worth of debt. Sri Lanka just isn't generating enough revenue in the economy to pay off public debts. That's why the IMF comes in. So you need a, an IMF program which does two things. It, it reduces the amount of debt, but it does that in order to make those debts sustainable and put the country back on a path to growth because... Sri Lanka can't just default and go away. They need to go on borrowing. Not only do they need to go on borrowing to do the stuff that they've been really struggling to do, like paying for health and education and basic uh, public services, Sri Lanka and a whole host of other uh, low-income, middle-income countries, all countries around the world, have huge challenges to face. So these countries need to get their debts in order so that they're sustainable, they can go back to markets, they need affordable borrowing, uh, and they need to be able to do it sooner rather than later. Jonathan Wheatley is the FT's Emerging Markets Correspondent. The dust from the UBS takeover of Credit Suisse is still settling, and it turns out that the deal left holders of Credit Suisse's relatively risky debt out in the cold. $17 billion worth of so-called AT1 bonds was wiped out, even though equity holders retained some value. As you can imagine, this did not go over well with a lot of people. Here to explain what exactly happened is our markets editor, Katie Martin. Hi, Katie. Hey, Mark. So these are AT1 bonds. A is an apple, T is in tiger, one. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of AT1 bonds? Additional tier one debt is a special type of debt that banks issue. It's one of the really big innovations that came out of the financial crisis in 2008. Regulators got together and said, okay, let's 
absolutely buster gut to avoid a situation in which depositors in banks are left on the hook if a bank fails. And so what they did is came up with this, this kind of a little bit like debt, it's a little bit like equity, and it's this kind of squidgy layer that sits in between the two of them, the bank's issue, that provides a cushion. The whole point of it is that it absorbs some of the shock in the event that banks get into trouble and that holders can lose money on it. The thing is, Buyers of additional tier one debt hardly ever lose money on it. So what happened when Credit Suisse and UBS went through this shotgun wedding? Equity holders, okay, they've lost a lot of money, but they haven't lost everything. Whereas the additional tier one bondholders have been wiped. Let me tell you something. This has not gone down well. <laughs> yeah, what, what has been some of the blowback to this So there's been lots of wailing and gnashing of teeth. There have been lots of people saying, wait a minute, you can't just change the rules on this three quarters of the way through the process and decide that we don't get anything. This is a reasonable pushback. The problem is that if you look at the small print of the prospectus under which this AT1 debt has been issued by Credit Suisse, I'm not a lawyer, but it looks like they can do this if they want to. So This means that investors henceforth are going to take quite a different view around the safety of additional tier one paper. This has been a very big shock to people who really know their stuff. So Katie, the whole point of this UBS Credit Suisse deal was to make sure that the banking crisis didn't have a contagion effect. Could the issue with AT1 bonds actually do the opposite and and keep the crisis going? I mean, I don't want to, you know, unfurl my mission accomplished banner too early, but it feels like this is contained. It feels like the casualties here are holders of 81. And that feels like a reasonable kind of bit of collateral damage to the rest of the market. The rest of the market seems to be saying, well, it is in the small print. So I guess you know, them's the breaks. But I think there will be legal challenges. I think, you know, what we're seeing already is regulators elsewhere in the Eurozone and the UK are saying, listen, we have 81 there for a reason. And generally speaking, it won't get wiped out unless the equity holders also get wiped out. So that's kind of their reassurance to the market to say, listen, this debt still performs a function. This is still what it does. Katie Martin is the FT's markets editor. Thanks so much, Katie. No problem. First, Republic Bank is still in bad shape. That's the regional bank caught up in the fallout from the Silicon Valley bank collapse. First Republic got a $30 billion deposit from major U.S. banks last week. The deposit was supposed to inspire confidence in the bank. But investors are still worried. Yesterday, the San Francisco-based lender saw its stock plunge 47%. The FT's Brooke Masters explains why the big deposit didn't stabilize the bank. In a weird way, it scared people because why did they need to do that? Why did they need $30 of extra deposit money if the bank is really stable? The thing to remember about First Republic is it shares some, but certainly not all, of the same characteristics as Silicon Valley Bank, which was the bank that started all this mess when it went down March 10th. Like Silicon Valley... First Republic has a lot of very large depositors who would not be covered by ordinary deposit insurance. So that means they're worried about what happens to them if the world falls apart. And the other thing that's wrong with First Republic, if you are an investor and scared, 
is that it has an enormous um, long-dated mortgage book. This is different than SVB, but it has the same problem in that it is these mortgages, if held to maturity, like all the way for 30 years, they're fine. But on paper, they are worth less right now because the Fed has raised interest rates. So if First Republic has to sell them to meet depositor withdrawals, they're going to take big losses. So those two things are what's freaked people out. Are there other rescue plans in the works? There's definitely a lot of chatter. Ideally, from First Republic's point of view, you would want somebody to put in what's called an equity injection, i.e. buy more shares, because that gives them more resiliency in case they have future losses, and it might reassure the market. However, if you are a fund manager or a bank, putting in equity in something that might get taken over by the FDIC and therefore wipe out all of the shareholders is irresponsible. And so I think people are quite reluctant to put more equity in right now. Brooke, could the bank get sold to prevent a collapse, kind of like what we just saw with Credit Suisse? It absolutely is a possibility. Um, It could get sold. It could get taken over by the FDIC and then sold. Um, I think the the question for anybody who wants to buy it is, is this problem of this mortgage book that takes losses? Because it is a bank. If you buy another bank, you then have to take mark-to-market on everything, all of its assets, i.e. the loans it's made. So you would take those losses. So there's a reluctance, again, to sort of get involved. I mean, First Republic is a lovely banking franchise. It's the kind of place that if you were kind of upper-level wealth but not super money, go to and get really good treatment. It's got customers who love it. So it's it's a funny thing. It's a really good franchise. It's just in a weird bind right now. Brooke Masters is the FT's U.S. financial editor. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.